Today's New Testament reading is from John chapter 21, verses 15 through 22. And if you would like to look along in the Bibles, you can find it on page 529. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, he said, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. The sermon text is from Deuteronomy 5, verses 6 and 21. And you can find that on page 86. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his manservant, or his female servant, his donkey, his ox, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Deuteronomy, the book that we've been studying all fall, is a book that takes place at the edge of the promised land. It takes place as the nation of Israel is gathered around waiting to enter this land that God has promised. And it is a book that describes what life is going to be like in that promised land. When the people are no longer slaves like they were in Egypt under Pharaoh, but when they are citizens of a kingdom where God is their king. And the Ten Commandments that we have been looking at over the last few weeks set out that basic standard of life. They show us what God's standard really is. And uh, we have studied the first nine commandments over the last few weeks. And I think we have discovered in that time that that standard is pretty weighty. That is a pretty heavy law that God has given us. That each one of those commandments, there is not a single one of us who could escape them. But just in case you still think you're doing all right. Just in case you think you might have made it through. The tenth commandment comes along to close it out. The Tenth Commandment comes along to obliterate any chance of survival. 
Um, if, do you remember that movie, Groundhog Day? Did anybody see that? It's kind of getting old now. It's a Bill Murray movie, maybe from the 90s or the 80s, I don't know. Um, but he's reliving the same day over and over and over again. And somewhere around the middle of the movie, he decides to just start trying to, to kill himself in all kinds of ways to escape this endless day. And there's a scene where he takes a truck and he drives it off a cliff. And the truck flips in the air and falls like a thousand feet and lands on its top and smashes. And it cuts to the cameraman, because he's a news anchor, and it cuts to the cameraman who looks down the mountainside and he says, he could be okay. And then all of a sudden there's a huge explosion, like an like a atomic bomb kind of mushroom cloud of fire sets this truck on fire. And then it cuts back to the camera guy and he's like, eh, probably not now though. <laughs> that, that right there is the function of the Tenth Commandment. <laughs> you get to the nine and you say, I could possibly make it. But the Tenth Commandment is that explosion at the end of the law that ruins any chance of survival. The Tenth Commandment is brutal. And I hope that we can see that this morning. That's where I want us to go. I want us to see three things that the Tenth Commandment teaches us. The Tenth Commandment, first of all, deals with our hearts. That's what I want us to see first. The Tenth Commandment deals with our hearts. Secondly, the Tenth Commandment calls us to contentment. The Tenth Commandment calls us to contentment. And thirdly, the Tenth Commandment requires that we take up the cross. The Tenth Commandment requires that we take up the cross. So, what do I mean when I say the Tenth Commandment deals with our hearts? Well, the essence of this commandment, the, the basic meaning of the Tenth Commandment is to show us that our sin is not simply external actions, but our sin is something that happens in our hearts. Sin is something that takes place in our hearts apart from our actions even. Now, we mentioned in the last few weeks that the first four laws are all about our relationship between us and God. And then laws five through ten are all about our relationship between us and our neighbors. Laws five through ten are about how do we love our neighbors. And at the most basic level, five, six, seven, eight, nine, they are external commandments, right? You can tell when someone is breaking the fifth through ninth commandment. You can see when somebody is murdering someone, or you can hear when someone tells a lie or disrespects their parents. You know when someone has committed adultery or stolen something. They're all, at least in their most simplistic view, those are all kind of external, outside commandments. And if you were to imagine yourself in this setting, if you were to imagine yourself in that crowd of people standing next to the promised land, waiting to go in, being reminded of what God's law was, you can imagine, maybe, that you were building this list of how to love your neighbor. Well, this is what it's going to take. These are the standards that God has. Do this, not that. Don't kill anybody. Don't steal anything. And, and maybe you get to commandment nine and you're thinking, well, this is pretty doable. If I just keep these laws, I'll be loving my neighbor. God will be happy. Things are going to be great. But then the 10th commandment says, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. I imagine the first time people heard that, they, were, they probably thought, what? 
desire? I can't desire. I understand those other commandments about how I should treat my neighbors. I know why it hurts people when I murder them or steal from them or, or commit adultery. I get that. I see how that hurts people. But why does God care about my desires? Who gets hurt by that? How are my neighbors really affected by what's happening inside of my heart? Well, that's really the point. Our neighbors are affected by what's inside of our hearts. The point of the 10th commandment is to show us that the breakdown of community begins in our hearts. Amen? The breakdown of community begins in our hearts. It begins with this thing that the Bible calls coveting. So what is it? What is coveting? Well, a simple definition is that coveting is a desire for what belongs to our neighbor. Coveting is a desire for what belongs to our neighbor. So, coveting is different than theft. Remember when we studied the Eighth Commandment, we talked about how we all desire more, we're all trying to get more things and, and add to ourselves. That's really not what coveting is. Coveting, that's a different sin. Coveting is not just about getting more. Coveting is about the thing that happens in our hearts when we see what others have. Coveting is what happens in our hearts when we see what others have. And that means coveting is a sin we commit all the time. Who here is on Facebook? You can raise your hands. Let me know. Like almost everybody. They got like a billion, two billion, three billion people on it. Facebook is a website that exists so that we can connect with our friends and family, so that we can see pictures of people's kids or their grandkids, find out about different events that are happening in the neighborhood hear people's thoughts, read different news articles. That's what it's supposed to be for. But I have discovered that, at least for me, Facebook can be a really bad place. Facebook, maybe more than anything else in the last 10 years, has revealed to me how deeply covetous my heart is. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that, that Facebook made me covetous. <laughs> I'm saying that Facebook has been the tool that has revealed what's going on inside of me all the time. See, I started to realize that when I get on that website, when I open up that app or whatever, and I start to scroll through that news feed that shows me people's happy families, people's great vacations, their lists of accomplishments and new relationships, I don't rejoice with them. <laughs> I don't find myself feeling happy for them. No, I feel sad. I get sad. I realize that I am sad when I see other people doing better than me. I envy them. I get depressed about it. I get bitter about it. Or even worse, sometimes the opposite happens. Sometimes I get on and I start scrolling through and I see people who aren't doing as well as me. Maybe they're a few steps behind. And I don't, I don't become concerned for them. I don't mourn for them or pray for them. I rejoice. I find that I feel good when I know that I am doing better than someone else. And that is coveting. Coveting is not just desiring what your neighbor has, but coveting is also desiring that your neighbor doesn't have what you have. It's whenever we desire not to prosper 
but to be better off than somebody else. Do you see the difference? And that is sin. That's a sin that is despicable to God. He includes it in the Ten Commandments for us. Because you see, coveting is really the opposite of the Great Commandment. The Great Commandment that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Coveting does the reverse. When we covet, instead of loving our neighbors, we put our own personal well-being at the center of the universe. Everything revolves around what we have in relationship to others. And so when we have more than others, we're happy. And when we have less than others, we're sad. When our hearts start to covet, really what we're doing is we're pushing God out of the picture. We're removing any notion that he might be sovereign in our lives, that he has a sense of justice, and instead we're judging the world by our own sense of justice. By what we think we deserve. By what we think God owes us. By what we think, you know, the universe or whatever is owing to us. So instead of of centering our lives upon God, we center it on ourselves. And because of that, James tells us that, that coveting, that sin of coveting is at the root of all of our sins. Do you remember this passage? It's in James chapter 4. We actually read it in our call to confession. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. James says that there is this internal battle that is always happening inside of you. That there is this internal covetous battle where we want to be above our neighbors. And when it bubbles up, when it starts to fester, it grows into murder. And it grows into theft and adultery and you name it. So when you start to think of it that way, that coveting is at the root of these other big sins, you can start to realize how some of the greatest atrocities in human history... Actually, we're just coveting. They started with coveting. You know, I was just, uh, I was thinking about Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. Have you guys, you know that book? She talks about some of the, the present day injustice, but she also talks about the history of our nation. She talks about the Reconstruction era, right after uh, slavery had ended. And one of the things that she points out in that book was that it wasn't only the former slave owners that wanted to keep the the freed slaves oppressed and beneath them. But they said it was especially the poor whites living in the South. That they saw the prospect of these free slaves becoming wealthier than them. Becoming more powerful than them. Or even just becoming their equals. And when they saw that, they feared. And they supported the the formation of these laws that would go on to, to oppress people for generations to ensure that they could never rise up. That started with coveting. And maybe that example, it seems like a million miles away, right? Way in the past, it seems like somebody else did that. That doesn't really hit our hearts. But I want to say that same sin takes place today. And it takes place especially in the church. 
You know, the church, the vision of the church is it is a place where every tongue and tribe and nation come together and worship. And we pay all sorts of lip service to equality. We pay all, we talk about diversity. We, we talk about all the things that we would love to see the church be and do. But at the end of the day, we are afraid. We are afraid that we refuse to let go of traditions that make us comfortable, that make the powerful comfortable and marginalize the weak. There is a certain fear of losing power, even in that, even in the way we structure what happens here in this room. And so I guess the whole point is what I'm trying to say is that when we we tend to think of coveting as a sin of the have-nots, it's a sin that, that only people who don't have can commit. But it's, the truth is, it's both. In the same way that the powerless can covet power or status, that the poor can covet, covet wealth and can obsess upon it and it can turn into sin, the powerful can have a covetous fear of losing what they have, of losing status or wealth. And both things are sins against their neighbor. On one hand, the desire to have more bubbles up into murder and to theft and to adultery. On the other hand, the desire to keep what you have bubbles over into oppression and to injustice, into genocide, into systems that hold people down. James says that coveting produces all sorts of sin. But here's the most devastating part of all this. The Tenth Commandment tells us that before our coveting turns into anything, it's already sin. Coveting is sin before we do anything about it. Coveting is sin just when it happens in our hearts. Coveting. Not the things produced by coveting, but coveting itself is the sin. That is the sin. The sin that is behind every horrible atrocity in human history is the sin that lives in your heart right now that you are ignoring. It's the sin that you feel when you scroll through your social media and you just dismiss it. Because who are you really hurting? Nobody can really see your heart, right? Nobody can really feel your desires, can they? But the 10th commandment tells us that that sin of coveting breaks apart the community. And we are all guilty of it. We are all guilty of God's law because of it. The 10th commandment deals firstly with our hearts. So that's the first point. The 10th commandment, it deals with our hearts. But secondly, I want to say that the 10th commandment positively calls us to contentment. So when the 10th commandment says, do not covet, what it is positively saying to us is, be content. Say that, be content. Be content. Say it one more time, be content. be content. The 10th commandment is telling us to be content. Now John 21, Ariel, she read for us that passage. It's a pretty awesome story. One of my favorites probably in all of scripture. It's that interaction between Jesus and Peter that takes place after the resurrection. And if you remember the story, you know that Peter, while Jesus was being unjustly tried and betrayed and murdered, Peter denied that he knew Jesus at all. 
And here, after the resurrection, Jesus has come back to Peter. And he's speaking to Peter and he's forgiving Peter. He's asking Peter, calling him into ministry and asking him if he loves him. And if you read the passage again, you see that it is just this beautiful, heartfelt, emotional moment where where Peter says, yes, you know that I love you. And you believe it. You believe that Peter is ready to do anything for Jesus. And so Jesus then gives him this call into ministry. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show him by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. So Jesus responds to Peter by saying, you're going to follow me and it's going to lead to your death. And here's the next line. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. He saw John. And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. I love, I love that story. I love Peter. This is why we need Peter. Because Peter, as soon as he has this heroic moment where he does everything right, where he professes his undying love for the Lord and his desire to follow him, it takes about two seconds. <laughs> he looks over to his side. He sees his buddy John. And the first question he has is, okay, sure, sure, Jesus, I'll follow you to death, whatever. But, but what about him? It's going to be bad for him too, right? <laughs> I mean, if it's, bad, if it's that bad, it's going to be really bad for John because, you know, you really like John. And Jesus, what does he do? He rebukes him. He says, what is it to you if he lives forever? You follow me. I was trying to think of what that would be like for Jesus to say to me or to you. Just imagine, who is the person that you compare yourself to most often? Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a relative. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's somebody at your workplace. Who is it that's on your same track in life? In this moment, Jesus says to you, what is it to you if I give that person everything you've ever dreamed of? What is it to you if I give them everything you've ever wanted and more? What does that change about who I am and what I've called you to do? He says, you follow me. You follow me. That could basically be a paraphrase of the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. You follow me. The 10th commandment calls us not to concern ourselves with what our neighbor is doing. But instead focus on what God has called us to do. And in that way, it's the perfect bookend of the Ten, Command- the Ten Commandments, right? The first commandment is, you should have no other gods before me. And the Tenth Commandment is, don't look around. Look right at me. Be content in me and me alone. You follow me. Don't worry about your neighbors. You follow me. And that's the point. That's, that's the point of this law, that, that coveting is ultimately a sin where we are turning our focus off of God and towards another. 
Coveting is the sin of the sideways glance. It is the sin where instead of looking to Jesus and fixing our eyes on him, we look at the person next to us and we look at what they're doing. And so that means when we feel discontent, when we feel that sadness, when people are doing better than us, we're actually discontent with God. We are looking sideways. We are concerned about what other people are doing because we believe in our hearts that God himself isn't enough. It is the way that our hearts say, God is not enough to satisfy me. To be truly fulfilled, I need what she has. To be really happy, I need what he's got. It's the opposite of that song we sang, right? God is good to me. It's our hearts saying the exact opposite. It says, God has not been good to me. So let me ask you honestly, do you feel that way? Right now, I imagine there are some of you who feel that way. Who, if you're, if you're being completely honest, you would say, I do not believe that God has been good to me. I'm going to be honest. I, I have been there. And I have been there recently. I think I told you this uh, maybe at the beginning of this series, but, but back in April, just a few months ago, I was absolutely in that place. I was so caught up in those sideways glances, in comparing my life to all the people around me, that I could find almost no joy in what God had called me to do. I was, I was bitter. I was, I was depressed. I, I found myself daydreaming about any life that I thought that might be easier than mine. I was, I was just hoping that I could go and be the like 17th pastor at a megachurch somewhere. Be in charge of men's ministry like once every other week or something. <laughs> maybe I'm telling you guys too much. I don't know. I was right there though. And maybe some of you are there too. But I will tell you that in God's mercy... He showed me my sin. He showed me in that moment, through a lot of things, through a lot of people, through his word, he showed me that my problem was not that what God had called me to was particularly hard. What God called Peter to is pretty hard. <laughs> what God has called those Christians in China to is pretty hard. You heard me pray about it. I don't know if you saw the story, but... Uh, they, the, the prime minister, they have ordered that all of these churches in this very poor area of China remove all the images of Christianity and of Jesus and instead replace them with images of the prime minister. And they said if they don't, they're going to remove basically their food stamps. They're going to take away their food assistance. What God has called them to is pretty hard. My problem was not that this was all that hard. My problem was that I was coveting the lives of others. My problem was that I was looking at them instead of looking at him, amen? And maybe you're there. I know that some of you are there. I know that some of you in this room are doing that very thing right now. You're doing it with your jobs. You're doing it with your marriages. You're doing it with the fact that you're still single. You're doing it with your health. 
with your finances. We are all looking around thinking that we deserve to have it better than we do. But here's what one pastor said. He said, the truth is that if God wanted you to have more right now, you would have it. If you needed different gifts to enable you to glorify God, he would provide those gifts. If you were ready for the job or ministry you think you really want, he would put you into it. If you were supposed to be in a different situation in life right now, you would be in it. Folks, God is not holding out on you. That's what this commandment is trying to teach us. Do not concern yourself with what your neighbor might have. What is it to you? You follow him. Take your eyes off of others. Put your eyes on Jesus. That is the way to be content. But how do we do that? How do we actually get there? How do we move from this place of discontent to actually being content? Well, this is the last point I want to make. The Tenth Commandment requires that we take up the cross. People, when they talk about the gospel, sometimes you'll hear them call it the upside-down gospel. And I think that is a great way to consider the Tenth Commandment. The gospel does seem upside down when we think about the Tenth Commandment. See, the lie that we hear, the lie that coveting tells us is that I need more than my neighbor in order to be complete. But the gospel comes in and it tells us something completely different. The gospel comes in and says true abundance comes not through more, but through less. Not through gaining an advantage over our neighbors, but through giving it up. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. You know that? Jesus did not seek to put himself over others. But instead, he gave himself up for them. He gave himself up for you. For all of us. That's the gospel. That, that the living God, the eternal son of God, he stepped down from glory. Instead of trying to get more, instead of trying to become great, he put himself low. He became a servant to all. He was despised. He was rejected. He was crucified for your sins and mine. And the gospel shows us that through his surrender... Through that lowness, God brought about the redemption of the world. He brought about resurrection and new life. Because Christ humbled himself, it says, Paul tells us, Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. See, the gospel tells us that the true way to glory, the true way to fulfillment comes through sacrifice. It comes through suffering. That is the upside down gospel. That is the upside down nature of Christianity. That, that the only path to true fulfillment comes not through looking at what others have, but from looking to Jesus alone and following him. In surrender. 
and following Him in sacrifice and service. That's what Jesus calls us to. That's, that's what He says. He says, take up your cross and follow Me. You know, in saying that, Jesus says, the path to contentment is not a glorious path. The path to the kind of contentment Scripture offers us will not lead to the kind of life that other people look at and covet. I was talking to an old pastor uh, who was near retirement age, and he was sharing with me that a few years back, he came to this place in his ministry where he was just ready to give it all up. He said it was so hard the ground was so hard, that the work seemed so fruitless, that he was convinced that if he continued to follow God in the way that he called him, that it would kill him. He said, if I keep doing this, it will lead to my death. And so he started to make some plans of how to maybe hand off the ministry to someone else or maybe step down. And then he told me that he came across this missionary biography about a guy that nobody really knew who lived his life faithfully and died in his 20s. But he, as he read it, he realized that this guy, even though the Lord had called him to death, died content. And he told me that day, he said that he realized that, well, you know, maybe if God has called me to a ministry that will lead to my death, maybe that's okay. Because that's what he's called us all to. He's called each and every one of us to death. He has not called us to glory and to fame. He has called us to die. But the gospel tells us that that death ends in resurrection. And that's the good news, folks. When our eyes are fully fixed on Jesus, no matter what happens we can still be satisfied. God does not hold out on anybody. Now, sure, there are some Christians who have more money than other Christians. There are some who have better health than others. There are some who have easier marriages or who have less stress. But there are none who have more of Jesus. Amen? He gives himself fully to you. Christ gives himself fully to everyone who would repent and believe. He tells us in John that he has come that we would have life. And that we would have it abundantly. And that abundance is found not through coveting what our neighbor has. But through turning our gaze back to Jesus. Through laying down our envy. And instead, taking up our cross. It's found by laying down our lives. And living for His glory instead of ours. That, folks, is the only way you're ever going to be satisfied. And that's why Paul says to us, in Philippians chapter 4, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. 
In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and in facing hunger, in facing abundance, and in facing need. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The tenth commandment is, you shall not covet. And God gives us that commandment because in Christ, we have no need to covet. Everything has been given to us in Christ. We have been made heirs of the kingdom of God. You and I, everyone who believes in this room, we will be together for all eternity, lacking nothing, wanting nothing. That is the good news. Folks, only when the Spirit of God shows you that will you ever be content. Only when you know in your heart that you have Jesus will we be able to give up our coveting. Will we be able to take up our cross and lay down our lives. Only when we know we have Jesus will we be able to love our neighbors and live not for ourselves, but for them.